All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio, episode thirty-eight. Jason Lingren is back with me today. We're going to talk about space. Um, I just got back from the West Coast. It was actually raining, a very, you know, a good rain in San Diego, which has been a bit unusual for. We've, there's been a drought out there for, uh, I don't know, something like ten years. Don't know exactly how long, but there was quite a bit of rain coming down when I was out there. Um, would needless to say, when I recorded this yesterday, I was a bit jet lagged. You'll hear Jason correct me uh, on rear projection, front projection at one point. Um, bit punch drunk from the travel back, but anyhow, um, we're going to talk about space. And for so many people out there who have kind of figured out what the moon landings were, this is really kind of a starting point in my view to understanding that space and other things we've been told about rockets, it's just more deception. It's all it is. And if you come to understand what the moon landings are, uh, your next logical progression will probably be to look at things like this. There's a lot of ways we could go at this, but what we kind of decided to do was lay down a timeline and address some of the things from all the way back in the Jules Verne era, where these novels of these kind of famous upper crust around the circles of royalty guys are writing books that are implanting the image of what space tra travel will look like um, in your mind. And this is, you know, well before television, well before Star Trek, but it will give a person a chance to consider the timeline and if they are so inclined to go out and begin to research this. And it is my view that if anyone does this, they will begin to see that what they've been told falls apart. Now, I had mentioned not too long ago I was actually stunned. I had gone outside one evening as uh, as fall. It was either late fall or early winter. It was getting cold. Um, we had had very high winds here for, I don't know, three, four days, something like that, a couple days anyhow. Um, so there were no chemtrails. There was no moon in the sky, and I walked outside, and I could see the Milky Way perfectly. I'm far away from city lights here. The conditions and seeing were perfect, and all at once I realized I was looking at the vault of the sky. And all these years of sky watching, even having been in the deserts and other places in Hawaii where the visibility is very good, for the first time it just hit me all at once. I could see what is referred to in old writings as the vault or the dome or the arch of the sky. Um, people can see this under the right conditions. You need to have no moon. You need to be far away from city lights. You need to be in a place where chemtrails haven't been going nonstop and you need to have good seeing. But when the Milky Way is visible, and you do have to be able to see the Milky Way, I would imagine, you can see it arc over the top of your head. And it's quite a thing to see. But to get back to the, to the subject at hand, when you begin to look at space, and you begin to look at rockets, and you begin to research the footage, and you do it with an open mind, and you set aside the things you've been told for your whole life, when you set aside all the movies you've seen that set the expectation of what space is, um, you set all these things aside and you go at it methodically and logically, you will find that it's no different than almost any point in history you can look at. It does not add up to what you've been told. And when you consider, you know, some of the work that I've done with the lunar wave and other things, from my point of view, that had a big bearing on, on when I began to realize all these things. It really started for me back in the 90s when I was shooting with film, trying to replicate what the Hubble, the supposed Hubble Space Telescope was producing, and I came to the realization it couldn't be done. And then, as I began to research more into the Hubble Space Telescope imagery, it was clear this was false color, this was a mosaic, these were all construct images. 
and while I could point my film camera back in the 90s through a, an SLR camera, hold the shutter open at, say, M42, the Orion Nebula, there is a light there in the shape you would expect it to be, but it's primarily red. And then I heard Fujifilm would give you greens and things like this, and I did all these things, and sure, I could get just a tiny bit of green in there, but it did not approach what we were being shown from the Hubble. And that's really when it began to fall apart, and in the modern era, coming to understand there is no Hubble Space Telescope. It's very likely that the Sophia aircraft has taken every images, although it has been demonstrated that a very good ground-based scope on top of a mountain could shoot images that can then be produced in the modern ways with Photoshop and other tools to look exactly like the Hubble images. It's been demonstrated. So anyhow, I wanted to mention one more thing. Um, I was thinking about doing another episode on the false news cycles because they are such a thorn in the side of our existence. They are, it is affecting so many people and bringing the consciousness of large groups of human beings very low with fear and fantasy and nonsense. So I went and I looked at some of the books that are being published because I wanted to understand, are there actually people publishing books that are telling the truth about these events? I grabbed one on Dallas, Baton Rouge. Um, I grabbed one on, well, of course, Sandy Hoax has been outed, and the Boston bombing. And here's what I found. For the most part, they are saying flat out, these are lies, these were drills, they're going into great detail, actually telling pretty close to the truth. But then you get, for in, using the Boston bombing as an example, you get to the point where they're talking about the supposed people who were supposed to have done the bombing, and they're saying that they were patsies. Now, in my view, this is nonsense. This is all a construct, and you're looking at actors. So frustratingly, again, we are seeing people publishing books that are primarily telling the truth that these are false events, but then keeping in this nonsense that they're killing innocent people and having real people take the fall for this supposed event. Um, it's very disheartening to see people coming so close to telling the, what I consider to be the truth. These are false events, and then getting the whole fear, violence, dialectic back in it by claiming actually this innocent guy was killed and blamed for it on all this other nonsense. I will probably cover this in an upcoming episode because it's so critical to our times. Here we are in the new year, and we have to wonder, what's it going to be, man? Is it going to be another just roughshod run all the way through 2017 with false news cycle after false violence, after false shooting, after, I mean, it goes on and on and on. And it is my hope that more people wake up. And when I see books published like this, it's a double-edged sword for me. While it is communicating to people basically that it is false and probably in a decent way doing that, it never can get the whole story right, and that is such a frustrating thing because it leaves the taint of false violence, false death, and these other things on the stories. But anyhow, um, I came in jet-lagged, wanted to get this episode out because I needed to get an episode out, so I called Jason, and we put together a list to walk through the timeline of space. This is not just a gimme for people. We're going to draw a timeline for people who truly want to understand something. If you take a look at the things we are talking about, you will come to the conclusion. I know you will. If you logically look at it and you set aside the nonsense you've been told your whole life, from schools to space agencies to everything else. And again, in my view, space agencies, all of them, 
They all share the vector logo in their, the vector symbol in their logos. They all exist above government in the same little club that exists for one reason in my view, to ensure that the average person on the face of this world knows nothing about what is above the blue sky they can see. So having said that, let's jump in. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio Podcast. This is episode 38. Uh, I have Jason Lindgren back with me from Secrets of Saturn, and we will be covering space. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways we could go at space to kind of show you that it's a construct and the descriptions of space that we've been given do not match the reality that we can decipher. Um, as a person who spent a lot of time behind a telescope, um, there are things that I could talk about that the average person might not be able to relate to so well other than maybe looking at some of my footage, but that doesn't really get it. Um, so what we're going to do here is draw kind of a timeline and try to give the average person enough information that if they choose to go challenge this and look at it, they can come to the conclusion that basically space is the fraud of generations. Um, it all starts with media and it does not matter whether it's pre-media that we have today, like televisions and things like this, even if we're just talking about stories, novels, books, even back to Jules Verne, um, we're going to draw the picture that shows how the image of space has been implanted into the world consciousness and how it's been maintained through the years. And um, just before I get Jason in here, I would point out, you know, anytime you can look at any given event, and take the numbers that are being associated or thrown in your face, and you can use simple, simple numerology to reduce them to 9-11. You should understand what's going on. We will get into this a bit more, but Star Trek is one of the major implanters of the image of space we all have in our minds. And few people are aware that right the hull number on the StarCraft Enterprise is <clears throat> excuse me, NCC-1701. Well, NCC adds up to 11. And the CC also encodes the number 33. For those who follow me, they understand whose thumbprint that is. But the 1701, of course, adds to 9. So right on the Star Trek Enterprise hull is 911 encoded. And that is the first kind of clue that I will drop to you that shows. Um, it is all nonsense. And it has been nonsense from the outset. Anyhow, let's get Jason in here. Jason, how are you, bud? I'm doing great, man. How are you, buddy? Good, man. How are, anything new in the new year with you? Yeah, um, I'm working on music again, uh, for one thing, but um, I've been working on my own show as well. Uh, I just finished something with uh, Dr. Johan Oldenkamp uh, from uh, the Netherlands, I believe he is. Really interesting fellow, uh, doing translations from uh, the original Greek biblical texts, so that was fascinating, and I got a couple more guys lined up. I've actually been having listeners write to me, and one of them is actually going to be an amazing guest of mine, uh, hopefully coming up in... Uh, this month to uh, he does a lot of esoteric kind of like what you were just talking about with the numbers and everything he does a huge breakdown of J the JFK assassination with the cult numerology and all that really interesting stuff so he's going to be coming on with me that's cool and of course the JFK hoax assassination has the 33 thumbprint on it because it was it was uh, executed right off the uh, 33rd parallel as was Roswell the whole alien agenda thing of course the Tavistock people uh, take complete uh, responsibility for the alien agenda as it's shown up in movies. But anyhow, we've got quite a list to get through here. Um, so what I think I'll do is I'll just kick it right over to you and, and let's jump in. 
Right. So what I thought we should do here when we were talking about space fraud and, and it's, uh, the social engineering aspects of it, it's everywhere. So I thought I would start with what I saw as the earliest um, but current aspects of that, which is uh, the Victorian era with uh, the author Jules Verne being the first real major science fiction writer uh, along with H.G. Wells. So we have Jules Verne putting out his book From the Earth to the Moon, which utilizes a space gun. Uh a cannon shooting a projectile that would carry three people into space. Um, it was kind of almost like a command module or sort of like the space shuttle in design. And on board, they had all the necessities of life on board for the journey. Um, and this kind of set up the, the very early notions of what a spacecraft could and should be like into the public eye. So they, they have this craft. This is the way it needs to be done because space is like this, and this is what you would need to survive there. Right. And I think the critical thing uh, that I see here is we can absolutely demonstrate that so many of the big mainstream sci-fi writers actually end up inventing so many of the technologies that we are now showing to be fraud, like satellites. As an example, and I always get this wrong, I don't know if it's Isaac Asimov or the other guy. Arthur C. Clarke, I believe. Yes, Arthur C. Clarke or Asimov, I forget which one, actually invents modern telecommunications and the satellite. Well, anyone who's followed my work, um, I have spent a lot of time trying to demonstrate to people that nothing goes above what we call low Earth orbit, and that would not even be what we consider space, whatever it is, and there are no satellites. And yet, so in the same way that the Church of Scientology was invented from a science fiction writer, so many of even nuclear stuff, nukes, um, come out of sci-fi writing. So what you're pointing out here with Jules Verne is part and parcel of these kind of upper crust probably many of them not too far away from the royal family or the elite, uh, writing these novels and these science fiction ideas that actually become, later on, what people believe to be true. Right, and uh, Jules Verne pretty much starts that, lays the groundwork, and then immediately we have H.G. Wells writing the book The Shape of Things to Come. And in 1936, a movie is made of it that he, I believe he actually took part with, um, Things to Come, and there's actually nukes used in that movie. Uh, Now, in 1936, there weren't officially nukes yet, so there you you go backing up the statement you just made a moment ago. Um, And this movie ends with the shooting, again, of a manned projectile into space utilizing uh, an electric gun, and it's supposed to be the great achievement of mankind after decades of horrific war and destruction and, and the nuclear fallout and all that stuff. An interesting point also, in 1936, uh, that's the acknowledged year of the founding of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or JPL, at the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, California. So, interesting tie-in there as well. Right, and of course, 1936 is another uh, basic numerology encode. The number 36 is meant to represent 666, and the reason for that is that if you take every digit from 1 to 36 and add them together, you come up with 666. So quite typically, 1936, usually they leave off the century and they encode, in my view, a lot just the years. So 36 would encode 666. But I mean, even when we get into JP, Um, Absolutely, we were just talking about the Church of Scientology, and there is the Church of Scientology creator, L. Ron Hubbard, hovering around the creation of JPL. Um, And there have been many accounts how the three main groups that started JPL were Masons, and there were a lot of them. 
uh, supposed people from Nazi Germany, and then people that were referred to as magicians, and this would have been the L. Ron Hubbard set, and I can't remember the guy's name. Parson? I think it's Jack Parson. Jack yeah, Jack Parsons. Um, these are the guys that are involved, and so we have the same cast of characters. And H.G. Wells, I mean, anyone who wants to kind of see a real insider... And there seems to be some Tavistock ties uh, from the work Wells did. Um, do you know when he was born, by the way? Do you have any idea what era? Uh, he was born in the Victorian era, but he um, – I can get to the year real quick. But he, he was part of all the upper crust clubs and all that. Um, right. He was he was involved with all of that uh, in, in the Victorian era and then into the Edwardian era. And he, he just – it's obvious that he rubbed shoulders with the kind of people who were manipulating society. He was born in uh, 1866 and died in 46. So there you go. He was involved with all of that early late groundwork being laid down. So there you go. Um, you know, just prior to his death, the people who end up making the Tavistock Institute, who are playing on Jung and Freud's very right-wing ideas, very kind of I, – I don't even know how to put a label on it. It's beyond – I, I don't. I, I don't even know how to label it. It's beyond what our ideas of Nazis would be. But they take these ideas and they start the mind sciences or the sociological sciences, which begin to program our existence. And many of these authors are, you know, like the guy who wrote Animal Farm, Brave New World, 1984. All these people are in the sphere of influence of the people who are creating Tavistock. So when we think about JPL um, and we think about H.G. Wells, we're looking at part and parcel of the Boys Club who are fashioning the image of the reality that in the modern era the average person believes in, what space should look like, what it would be like to travel to a supposed planet, these ideas. That's what these people are up to. And for my money, they're making it up out of whole cloth. They're doing it to deny the average citizen of this world understanding of where it is they are where their center is, where it is they exist. And that sets aside how we got here or how long we've been here, any of these other things. But anyhow, I'll, I'll let you keep moving down the road. Uh, an interesting note that um, George Orwell, or his real name was Eric Blair, also ran right. in some of these circles and uh, was obviously privy to a lot of information that you know most people would not be. So it seems that Brave New World, or excuse me, not Brave New World, um, 1984, was... Uh, Almost like he was saying, "Hey, watch out! This is what this is what they got in mind." And um, that's right. And in the book, there's rocket launches. You know, they're they're dropping rockets on the the civilian population to keep the never-ending war going. So it, that that notion is also injected even in that book. Right. And of course, the never-ending war is a fraud. Um, there, There is no such thing as a never-ending war. It's just a means of control. And you point out a very critical thing here. Animal Farm demonstrates flat out how some of the ways they manipulate a world population. Brave New World is a blueprint for where we are headed, flat out. And these, again, are directly from the outskirts of the Tavistock Institute setup, who is attributed as one of the main programmers of our society. And then, of course, 1984 is, as you stated, it's kind of a uh, a long mirror reflection of, of what things may become. Right, and that comes out in uh, 1948, and then we get up to 1950, and then there's a uh, pretty major motion picture released. Uh, even though science fiction isn't really a popular thing yet, we have uh, a movie called Destination Moon, uh, and its success sets the stage for... 
the massive sci-fi craze that now starts going on in the 1950s into the 1960s. We have tons of films coming out um, that all seem to have a very similar tone and feel. Some of it was about alien invasion. Some of it was just all about space travel and all that. But this is where we really see this, the, the, what they call the space age kicking off. They all seem to be saying the same thing. Even the alien invasions are very similar, and, all, and the aliens look very similar. Like, it's all, you could tell, this is just being churned out to just drive home this same notion over and over and over again. Right. It's, it, what they're doing is they're playing from a, a pre-planned script. They're going to create an image in the mind of everyone of what aliens are, you know. Uh, and, and I've said it a lot of times, it upsets a lot of people, but the alien agenda is flat out shown to be invented by the Tavistock Institute. Now, whether or not there are other beings out there, I can't answer these things, but I can say I don't see direct evidence for it. And I filmed a lot of weird things. But to get back to the space thing, it's really no different than what happened with the Wild West. If you went out into the world and asked people what their thoughts on, you know, how the American Wild West was, you'd basically get a version of the Buffalo Bill Cody show, you know, that toured around America. And it is the furthest thing from factual actuality of what we know about how the West in America was lived in and how it was advanced. Well, the space you know, moving into the space age, the same thing is going on. They are basing science fiction novels. They are basing at some point when they get up to film, film, media, and these other things. You know, it reminds me, Jason, there's a movie, I think it was the first big budget sci-fi. Um, is it called 50 Million Miles from Earth? It's called something like that. Um, but they go to this planet to find a professor who's... Oh, that's, um, yeah, the Fantastic Planet. Is that what it is? I believe so. I'll double check real right now, but I believe that's it's uh, it had Leslie Nielsen in it. That's the one you're referring to, right? Right. It had it does have Leslie Nielsen, and of course, there's a professor there um, who's Walter Pigeon plays the professor, and he has found ancient alien technology. And so, from the very onset of the first big motion picture, and it's a great picture even today, it holds up. Um, they're implanting the ideas of the flying saucer what space travel should look like, what it would look like if you could approach a planet, what it should look like when you're leaving a planet, all this imagery, which is basically, it, you know, it almost takes on a religious overtone. If we were to go back in time before we had all this modern media, when men and women came together to really concentrate on a thing, it would have a lot to do with religion back in the day, whether it was a church or pre-churches, whatever you're talking about. But that's kind of the gap that these movies are filling. You see, they're painting this picture that most of us look at as just imagery, but it's much more than that. It is shaping the way we think about the place we live, and that is kind of a form of magic. Right. Uh, the movie was Forbidden Planet, a fantastic There it planet. is. Uh, exactly. 1956. And what's interesting uh, about Forbidden Planet, uh, it, it almost set up the, the groundwork for Star Trek because it was a military-esque kind of vessel coming to this planet exploring and, and going through you know the misadventure that, that's, that the plot unfolds. Um, seems very, very similar that that's where Star Trek came from. Well, it's there's another thing I noticed. I had watched that movie recently. Um, the movie still holds up. It's an interesting movie to watch, and the special effects are spectacular for the time. But it is the first big-budget sci-fi flick. One of the things you'll notice is the, as you mentioned, the military crossover. And it's not just any military. It's Navy. You will see so often 
that anything that has to do with space, um, like rocket ships or spaceships, are named after old sailing ships. Well, in the movie, um, of course, you have your bosun and you have your your cook, and it is totally sea-oriented. And for people who have followed along, they would understand that actually our modern law system, of course, is heavily influenced by the idea of maritime law and admiralty law. But you can see these archetypes being built from the ground up all the way to, you know, where you're pointing out the 50s and 60s as motion pictures begin to cover uh, the space fraud. Right. The 1950s and especially the 1960s, as we've spoken about at length before, seems to really be the massive shift in social engineering about how, how where they're going to take things for the future. You know, they have the huge visions of the past being portrayed. If you uh, remember that they had tons of Wild West movies and shows and things like that. That was a huge thing uh, in the 50s and 60s. And even Star Trek was supposed to be the wagon train of the stars because that was still uh, hugely popular at the time. And as you stated earlier, they created an image that is probably extremely far from the reality of what really went on with the early pioneers going out that way. I always, as an adult, would assume that if you were founding a bunch of towns out in the middle of nowhere, it would probably suck big time. It would be, you know, smelly, and you probably didn't have a lot of good food. The water wouldn't be great. You know, you're literally building from scratch. I'm sure it was an incredibly rough existence. Yeah, you would have to imagine. And if you had a society that was basically the gun decided everything, you've got to begin to question, how would that ever work? Um, and the truth, you know, that's... What I think is closer to the truth, um, they're demonstrating that actually women had a hell of a lot more to do with the founding of the Western frontier than men did. Um, and that is starting to be a more realistic, believable picture. But you mentioned that all this was being planned out. It's not just planned out. It is planned out to a T. As an example, we were talking about the book 1984 and what date starts that? 48. Well, 48 is the mirror of 84. So it's all encoded numerically, and it's all got this numerology gematria game that is played everywhere. And it's a bit like a computer program where there's a foundational computer program with all these subroutines that are numerically coded, which relates them to one starting point or an ending point or one exercise versus another. It is all put together that way. And to be honest, it is quite astonishing to consider that somewhere in this world, there are a group of people who lay down this footwork. Oh, totally. And as we've discussed with other media, the 1960s, the mid to late 60s, seems to be where the really big shifts happen because they were doing it in music and movies and, and, and just the culture in general with all the assassinations and all of the things that were going on. It seems that the 60s was the time that they really took things and grabbed it and yanked it into a different direction. But before we get into the 60s, uh, the mainstream global space program begins in 1957 uh, with the announcement from the Soviet Union that they put Sputnik 1 satellite uh, into orbit. The net following year, is uh, in 58, uh, is supposed to be NASA's founding, and then they make the satellite claim as well with Explorer 1. I think what you're getting ready to point out is, I mean, even if we jump forward to the JFK speech uh, where we're going to go to the moon, I mean, basically nowhere, nobody's been anywhere uh, that matters. You know, we haven't been to space a bunch of times. I, I guess at that point, Yuri Gagarin in 61 um, is supposed to have orbited. Uh, we're told a dog and a monkey and a mouse or something have been shot up there. 
Um, some of them died. Some of them supposedly did not. My point being, the the president of the United States, John F. Kennedy, stands up, says we're going to the moon, when in fact there's no basis to make that statement. You know, we haven't been anywhere. There is no foundational ground to stand on from here we live on Earth, and by the way, we're going to this other place, and we really haven't even been to space yet. Right. That's the interesting thing. Uh, Soviets claimed the first one in 61 with uh, Yuri Gagarin. JFK makes a speech after that that they're going to the moon before the decade is out, but NASA hasn't done anything yet. But they're they're already making this insane uh, leap that we're going to do this this incredible thing. Uh, And then they uh, orbit John Glenn in 62. So of course, you know, so that begins the whole NASA fraud of what of what they're going to be doing all throughout the 60s. And and this whole episode that we're talking about now really begins to underline the fraud for anyone who can think. First off, you're looking at a president who has never had any experience in space to mention that matters. And he's saying we're going to go to the moon in less than 10 years and they pull it off if we're to believe what we were told, which I do not. Okay. Now let's go to Bush the junior, who at the end of his presidency says, guess what? We're going back to the moon. Well, it never happens. So with all the modern technology and everything else, um, you can see the problem here. So back in the 60s, they didn't have computers. They didn't have experience in space. They didn't have anything. And yet they're telling us, oh, yeah, with all this you know, minuscule technology, we put a guy up there and brought him back alive. And yet. 40, 50 years later, still nothing. You know, the Chinese are claiming they're on the moon right now. And it's just more nonsense. You know, as soon as the Chinese, what was it, Chang 3, I think we would call it Change 3 if we read it in English. And, of course, that that Chang idea relates to a myth that has to do with the moon, as so much of the Apollo missions do. Um What you're looking at here is multinational fraud. In other words, when you see a space agency and you notice the logo for that space agency, you will see a vector symbol in every single one of them. It does not matter if it's Iran, China, U.S., anyone with a space agency has this vector symbol. The vector symbol in my eyes almost demonstrates this club that operates so far above government because in the same way that JFK made the speech that we were going to the moon. In the same way NASA lied about the Apollo moon landings, China is doing it right now. And the funny thing is, is they are unafraid because not only did they take the the Chinese rover up there and immediately the video failed and people started calling out all these problems because the details will kill any one of these frauds, they're already announcing Chang 5 or Change 5, whatever you want to call it, um, is going to be, I think, this year maybe, uh, approaching the moon again. So it is not only full-spectrum coverage through novels, through movies, through media, but you have all the countries who are in the space game complicit in drawing the illusion that the majority of the world uses as as their actual view of what is real. Right. And all once we get into the 60s, the space thing is everywhere in books, in comic books, television, films, like it's it's completely saturated. And it's the same concept over and over and over again about what space is like, what planetary bodies are like, what the universe is like. So <clears throat> throughout the 60s, we have all these uh, supposed launches on both sides of the Cold War factions. Um, the USSR claims to have the first spacewalk in 65 with uh, Alexei Leonov. And then a few months later, NASA claims it again with Ed White. Um, 65 is also the year of the first released Mars pictures from Mariner 4, and this is where we start seeing all of these images coming out of all these planetary bodies, and, you know, 
they show they release pictures of the moon they release pictures of, of mars and this is setting up for obviously for later on the concept of what these planetary bodies are like that's right and mars is a really good example i actually went to the uh the lowell observatory and looked through that big i think it's a 20 inch 27 inch scope maybe i've forgotten uh just a beautiful beautiful image looked at the moon through that they wouldn't let us look at anything but one crater but the optics were stunning now here is a key point to make on what you just said so the pictures of mars start to come out Early on, there was this idea that there were canali or channels on Mars, and some people were pushing that they had to be built by living beings and others that they were natural features. But there was a real push to convince people there were canals on Mars and that people had built them. Funny thing is, there were a bunch of early observers, some of them with really big scopes, seeing this. And I looked through the scope of the man who spent 10 years, Percival Lowell, um, staring at Mars and mapping these supposed channels, which, by the way, no longer exist. If you look up anything on Mars, you will see that, well, Lowell was seeing phantasms or these other things. But there were a couple other people, Giovanni was one, I've forgotten their names, who were confirming what Lowell said. As a matter of fact, some of them were predecessors to Lowell in this idea. Well, then, all of a sudden, Giovanni, or one of those guys over in Europe, gets... into the Royal Astronomical Society and gets given access to a 33-inch scope, and then he recants on the on the channel's idea on Mars. And so this idea of Mars, the picture being seeded out to the world, persists until Lowell's death. And then they begin to recant, saying, oh, there were no channels. It was a mistake. These people didn't know what they were seeing, and they even did all these experiments to show how people can hallucinate. But here's the rub. And I think it was 62 or 63, you can actually go into Google Mars, and I think it's one of the layovers you can use. There is a U.S. Air Force map of Mars that shows the, the canali, the channels. In the early 60s, this is still going on. So you can see how an image is produced and then, in this case, cast aside for a different image that we're now all supposed to believe in as Mars. Right, and... and for whatever reason, they decided that this is the image they're going to portray, and that's what they start bombarding us with. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there there is no better example than Mars right now. Um, I remember not too long ago, a year or two ago, when they announced there's likely uh, water on Mars. Well, that happened, I think, on a Monday. Sometimes I get this backwards. So I'm going to say Monday and Friday. Um, I think I've got them right, but if I get them backwards, I apologize. They were going to announce on a Monday, they did announce on a Monday, that they had found that, yeah, likely there's water on Mars. That Friday, Matt Damon's major motion picture of the Martian releases. So you can see the full spectrum control. And to take that a step further, I was in San Diego at the time. They began playing nonstop Elton John's Rocket Man, David Bowie's Space Oddity. This was going on across three or four rock stations in multiple rotations a day, and all these other kind of very popular songs that have to do with space. So you can see, uh, even up to now, the push that's going on, on with Mars to get you to believe there is a place called Mars and we are going there. National Geographic has a television series going out on it it is regularly showing up in national geographic movie uh, magazine the sky and telescope magazine that i get just to keep track of what nonsense they're pushing this week is pushing it so i mean it is literally an organized full spectrum approach to put the image of what mars and what a mars mission should look like into the minds of the people and i'm here to tell you 
it's all fraud. Uh, we will never go to Mars, and Mars does not exist in the way it's been described to us. Yeah, what's interesting about everything you just said, I've been watching a lot of the, the film that's been released from all of these launches in the 60s, and the one thing that jumps out at me massively is that things just don't look consistent from program to program. You know, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, and all that, the Earth especially looks different. Right. I, I mean, there's no getting away from it. You know what I used to do is if you go to a search engine and you start to look up some of the earliest images of the moon you can find, what's astounding is it looks so darn 3D. Now, as a person who's spent many thousands of hours and years filming the moon with both video and stills through all phases, fully lit, partially lit, everything in between, I have never, ever been able to capture an image that shows this kind of three-dimensionality um, of the early moon images. And this takes us back to what you're talking about, the Earth. Now, this is a key point. The blue marble image that showed up in textbooks all over this world to seed in the mind of this world what Earth should look like from space is a fraud image. It's attributed to the Apollo 17 crew. For some reason, since the 70s, or maybe that was the 60s, I don't know, was, I guess it was the 70s. 72, I believe. Yeah, when that image was supposedly snapped from space of the world, we didn't get any more images of Earth from space. That same Apollo 17 image has been everywhere ever since, and it's proven to be a fraud. It's a construct. There have been a couple other images since recently put out that show supposed Earth from space, but immediately the average eye can see that the land masses have changed shape and size and all these other things. So it's a crazy, crazy thing. And for the average person to begin to challenge things at the level that we're throwing down here, you really need to start somewhere. And I would suggest the Apollo 17 image of Earth from space is a good place for someone who's new to this to start. It's an admitted construct. It is There is no snapshot anywhere of Earth from space, and you can demonstrate this by looking. The rotation is another thing I noticed, like in the, uh, the images, like the early 60s launches uh, released by NASA. The Earth is rotating super fast. Right. You know, and it just doesn't look the same uh, when you look at, like, the more modern stuff and you look at the, the space shuttle image, the last of the space shuttle launches and the ISS stuff that they show. The, in the early stuff, in the, the first spacewalk I was watching, I kept rewatching it. It looks like the Earth is just, like, spinning like crazy. It's like it doesn't look that way at all in, in later images. So, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, man, it's just, it's so glaringly obvious that it's, it's ridiculous. It's glaringly obvious if you get to a point where you understand that the details of any lie will destroy the lie. In other words, a hoax like this will die under the weight of its own details. Now, the cloud thing, to get back to the Apollo 17 image called the blue marble so often of Earth from space, which is a fraud image, people have now gone through that image and demonstrated that the cloud formations in that snapshot were just cloned. They're identical. There's like six or seven or eight spots where the exact same cloud formation was cloned back into the picture as if they were using Photoshop in the days this happened. Um, and not only that, you made a good point there. There are actually these very fuzzy, bad images of a supposed spacecraft imaging the Earth spinning with the moon rotating around it. And it makes the point perfectly that you were just alluding to. The Earth is just hauling butt on a full tilt spin, and yet every other image you ever see of Earth, um, there will be problems. And that includes these supposed ISS shots. You know, one thing we know as a rule, a law, from perspective in art class, 
is that if we were flying over the Earth, the clouds that are furthest from us would be moving very slowly. And as, as the Earth rotated under us, from the ISS perspective, if there was such a place, and there is not, as the clouds became closer to us, they would move more quickly, and the gaps between them would become wider and wider. In other words, clouds way far away on a rotating body that we were supposedly orbiting would be moving very slowly with very narrow gaps between them. The closer they got to you, the slower they would appear to, or the quicker they would appear to move, and the gaps would widen out. This proves flat out the fraud of all the ISS imagery and so many other things. And then, of course, there's the whole litany of supposed shots of the United States from the ISS um, at night. There's no lights. I mean, it goes on and on. The details will absolutely kill the idea that we have anything in space taking pictures of this planet. Yeah. And anybody who doesn't believe us, just go ahead and do what I did. Look at the... Uh Look at the earliest NASA releases. Go th go through time. This is what I did. I went through Mercury, Gemini, uh, then Apollo. I looked at all of them, and it's just things look different. You know, you don't have to exactly take Crow's word for it. You can do this on your own. Look at the images. This is what I did. I don't know what it means. All I can say is there's glaring inconsistencies, and I'm sorry, the planet shouldn't be changing within a year's time. That's right. And the other thing people should keep in mind is that an aircraft that's flying at 70,000 feet, which apparently can be done, will take images that would be nearly identical from what we would expect to see from a place like the International Space Station if there was such a place. And I maintain there is not such a place. So even a very high-flying altitude plane could be providing some imagery that is actually real. Well, there's tons of people who also do weather balloon launches and release the footage, you know? Right, right. And it this is what really got me. The Earth doesn't look like what it did uh, on the images of that I watched from Ed White's Spacewalk in 1965 or whatever it was. You know, it's like, well, how is that even possible? No, it's night and day. Um, that's actually a good point, Jason. I would urge people to go look at all the weather balloon footage where people are putting a camera putting a balloon up as high as they can, some trying to demonstrate the you know the shape of the Earth, others just to do it, and you will notice that the imagery you get is vastly different from the supposed images that we're supposed to be getting from space. Now, uh, going through the 60s, we come up to 1968, and this movie that is released in 1968, 2001 A Space Odyssey, there is a lot to say about it. Uh, not only is it the absolute most amazing science fiction production up to this point. This, the effects were absolutely unparalleled for when it came out, and, and really nothing really touched it up until Star Wars in 77. But this was made by Stanley Kubrick. The movie depicts man venturing to the outer solar system in regards to contact with basically what are alien obelisks. You know, the monolith, they, they are representational of the black cube, it, it would seem symbolically. The one big inconsistency a lot of people don't realize, because a lot of people don't read anymore, in the book of this, written by Arthur C. Clarke, they go to Saturn. Right. In the movie, it's been switched to Jupiter. Now, the claim is that they couldn't get the special effects of the rings to look right, and Kubrick was so anal about getting everything so amazing that he couldn't do it. I accept that as a possibility. The other side of that would be that um, it was a little too obvious if they said Saturn instead of Jupiter on film. And I don't think we need to go into a huge thing about how important Saturn is to the elite agenda and what it represents. 
No, I mean, it's been covered ab nauseum, but, you know, the whole here's just a, a tidbit for anyone who, who wants to take this apart. Did you know that at Ground Zero uh, in the 9-11 footprint where all the false flag event went on, the demolition of those two buildings, there is a hotel there called the Millennium, uh, the Hilton Millennium, I believe it's called. And it is an actual reconstruction of the obelisk from Stanley Kubrick's 2001 Right, the uh, the proportions were done right, and um, you know that should just tell you something. Well, of course, of course, it should tell you something. But the the thing about Kubrick was that it's been pretty demonstrated the amount of encoding he did in every movie he ever made. But in terms of two thousand and one, very few people know when it first was released. When the end credits rolled, there were all these thank yous and nods to NASA, to JPL, to all these places at the end of that movie who had helped make it possible. If you look at that movie today, every one of those credits has been lifted. But he went on to do another movie after that. I think it's called Barry Lyndon. Yes. It's So Barry Lyndon was done, and he wanted this to have a certain look. Did you know that he went to NASA and asked for this one-of-a-kind camera lens to get the look for that movie um, that made it so famous, the Ryan O'Neill movie, who plays the lead character. Um, Kubrick went to NASA and asked for a special lens that only he could get and use, and it just demonstrates what's going on here. But if we go back and look at Kubrick's possible involvement in the moon landing, you'll quickly find out that well, the problem here is people have to have a little technical expertise in terms of knowing how video works. But um, in every single moonshot um, that you can look at, nearly every one of them, there's a cut line where there's a horizon or sand or gray ground where there's a cut line and you can see where they can insert the rear projection of the background. Um, and this was done to so many images, uh, and I saw this years and years ago, that I fully understood, because I was a video guy, that this was wholesale fraud. Well, years later, when I had set up my YouTube channel, there was a, someone had sent me a link to a website uh, from the Soviet Union or somewhere like that, I've forgotten exactly, maybe it was the Ukraine. Um, it's called aulis.com, A-U-L-I-S.com. And there's a PhD there who worked for one of the big universities at one time who took stereoscopic method and applied it to just tons of NASA images. And he flat out shows that all the moon landing imagery that we were handed, all of it, was shot on a soundstage. And he can show the formulas that he used to do the stereo, stereo um, what is it, stereoscopic spectrophy? I forget what it's called. It's a stereoscopic method where you take two images and blink them, and it allows you to do the geometry, basically, to determine how far things in the background are. One example was that there was a shot taken where the, the mountains behind the supposed astronauts was supposed to be five kilometers away. He did his method, shows the formula so that it could be replicated any day of the week, and it's basically something like 500 feet away. This is incontrovertible evidence. This is math. You can't really argue these points, but um, I, I think that just the fact that they ripped out all the NASA credits from 2001 and then his next movie, Barry Lyndon, he goes to NASA to get, you know, a lens that no one else in the world could get is pretty damning on the face of it. Oh, it totally is. Now, there is no direct smoking gun saying that, yes, Stanley Kubrick was in bed with NASA and faked the moon landings. What there is, however, because I've looked into this quite a lot, 
there is so much circumstantial evidence that it's almost incontrovertible. So the production of 2001 takes place over four years. It also takes place at the same time as the development of the Apollo program. Exactly. And you're correct that at the end of the the original release of 2001, there are tons of credits with all these NASA people, and there's actually pictures of it, too. They were flying back and forth uh, from where 2001 was being filmed in England and to the United States. Now, Arthur C. Clarke was there as well. Uh, he's a known insider with a lot of the uh, the elite crowd and all that. So there's all this what seems to be dirty dealings going on between all these people. Now, whether Stanley Kubrick was just a brilliant movie maker and they got him involved or whether he was involved with things on a higher level, nobody really knows. But his last movie, Eyes Wide Shut, certainly kind of gave us a hint that he at least knew about a lot of the evil crap that goes on. Well, even in The Shining, Jason, I mean, there's the shot in the hallway of the little bit. Here's a couple things. When I had researched The Shining, I had done this right as the movie, I forget, Room 223. I don't remember the room number. But there's a movie documentary that breaks apart The Shining that shows what Kubrick was up to. In The Shining, the little boy Danny is in a hallway and he's sitting on a carpet with a rug has a certain pattern and he's playing with these trucks and this ball rolls into frame. As the kid stands up, he's wearing a sweater with the Apollo 11 rocket on the front of it. Well, just by chance, I guess we're supposed to believe, the pattern on the carpet is identical to the Cape Canaveral launch pad pattern. Um, And this goes on and on in the movie The Shining. There's another portion where there was a 1960s Tang commercial that ran in the 60s in black and white and color on TV where... A can of Tang is eclipsed, so the shadow makes the front of the can of Tang look look a certain way. At one point in The Shining, Kubrick, who was known to to set his sets up very particularly, had all these cans of Tang lined up so that they were eclipsed in exactly the same way, so that the appearance of the front of the Tang can matched perfectly the Apollo 11 Tang commercial. Right, and it is documented fact that Stanley Kubrick was obsessive about getting his shots exactly the way he That's wanted right. them. He would literally, every single detail, he would decide ahead of time and would do reshoot after reshoot after reshoot. And a lot of actors have said that it was it was quite grueling to work for him. A lot of people did it because they respected him so much and knew that what came out afterwards would be a masterpiece. But it is absolutely known that if it was shown in that shot, he put it there exactly the way it is seen. That is what he wanted. The mere fact right. that uh, the little boy Danny is wearing an Apollo 11 sweater, that was decided by Stanley Kubrick, and that and the way it's seen and all of that was absolutely decided specifically by Stanley Kubrick. That's right, and they have the little boy stand up, making it look like the rocket is leaving the launch pad. The pattern on the floor exactly matches the Cape Canaveral thing, but in my mind, to cut to the chase here, There is no doubt that what 2001 was about was to get the technology in place that NASA needed to fake the moon landing. Um, People can show that there's no direct evidence, but the problem here is, is there is so much circumstantial evidence that at some point it just becomes overwhelming. You cannot cast it aside. You know, it's a bit like, you know, I saw someone covering the other day, they have a what do they call it when a uh, when a museum takes an artifact and they you know put it on display and they uh, make sure it's all taken care of? I forget the word for it. But Neil Armstrong's suit, the one that stepped on the moon, is on display. Did you know that people are now demonstrating 
if you look at the bottom of the boot on that suit, it doesn't match the footprint that he supposedly left on the moon. It goes on and on and on. There's no getting away from it. Yeah, I'd love to have that. Um, I'd like to have someone actually get that and say, like, without a doubt, you know, maybe walk up with an iPhone or something like that, get it all on film and be like, hey, this is this is what they're claiming. And here's the picture of the moon. Like, let's let's definitively knock that one out of the ballpark. I I think it's pretty much been done. I mean, because at some point, if they understood it was going to be a problem and they changed it, you know, there's going to be images of the suit before it's changed. Although I imagine they'll probably create some elaborate story how there was some other part of the uniform that we weren't aware of or who knows. But it's these details that just completely demonstrate um, that space travel uh, in the era of the moon landings is a complete farce. It's just a made up. It's made up nonsense. Now, to tie up the 2001 whole situation, uh, there's a very excellent documentary. In fact, there's two of them, and I think a third one is coming out by the researcher, author, filmmaker Jay Widener. And I've seen the two he's released where he goes into very specific details about all the things we just discussed. And what it comes down to is Stanley Kubrick was the master at what was called front screen projection. Uh, and, and what that is, right. this was the precursor to blue screen and green, green screen techniques that would uh, start coming into heavy use in the 70s, which was more effective and um, basically less of a pain in the ass to do. You could do a lot more with it. Uh, and what it was is you would have an image projected behind the actors so that you could have actors walk around in front of it, but it was really close to looking almost perfect. And this technique is used repeatedly in 2001 A Space Odyssey. And what Jay Widener and others have demonstrated is that the same techniques where they have to hide the screen line. Right. With, you know, on set, you would have to have something covering up the fact that there's a screen behind the actors. Well, what's demonstrated over and over and over again is that you can tell where they would have done that in the moonshots. That's what I was pointing out, what I was calling cut lines. So basically what Jason's saying, and just so people understand how this technology is used, you've seen it a million times in old movies. Let's take any 50s-era movie where the people are driving in a car. They're sitting in a car that's not moving, and there's a front projection going on behind them. So there's a screen behind the car that shows all the traffic and everything going on to make it look like the car is moving. The image is projected onto the screen through the back of the screen, so that everyone can stand in front of the screen without the projection getting in the way. I hope I described that properly. Well, actually, you're getting those wrong. The, the 50s style is called rear projection. And look, if you look at it, it's the film is several generations older. That's why it looks kind of washed out and, and the lighting doesn't match up. The big thing about front screen projection is you don't have that issue. That's why it's almost perfect. Right, right. So, very few directors had that technique down, especially to the effect that Stanley Kubrick did. So that's that's one of the big, massive circumstantial uh, pieces of evidence that's used is that he did this so well. And a lot of people didn't know that yet in the 1960s. And actually, that's a good point, Jason, because when you look at the movies I was just pointing out, the, the appearance of it is a bit more fuzzy. Um, it looks... I mean, if you concentrate on it, it just doesn't look as sharp as the rest of the picture. And then when you do get up to the front screen, it looks a lot closer. It's harder to pick out. But when they're doing it on the moon footage, I mean, there are very few images when you can't see a horizon line or a set of rocks or something that ends up being the cut line, which would hide the bottom of the screen. All right, man, that is the first hour of episode 38 with Jason Lindgren in space. Uh, as we get into the second hour, we cover so much, um, and we get into Kubrick and, and all the things that we were just mentioning, um, and we go right down the timeline up into the modern era. Um, it's, it's a good show for those who truly want to take a look with an open mind and know something. So there it is. Cheers. <laughs> 